This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with George Flutus. George is a lifelong Chicagoan, and in addition to being ubiquitous on the Chicago scene for decades, he has recorded and toured internationally with many of the marquee names in jazz, including the Ray Brown Trio, Lou Donaldson, Kenny Burrell, Betty Carter, Benny Green, Roy Hargrove, Hank Jones, Cedar Walton, Diana Krall, and many more. George was also recently featured on the Drum History Podcast, one of our sister podcasts on the Drum Click Network, lending his perspective on the legacy of John Bonham. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Our latest Patreon content features Ash Sohn. Also great stuff there from Doan Perry, Joe Bergamini, Stephen Chopek, and Chuck Palmer. Talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. That's patreon.com slash working drummer. So I had been wanting to interview George for a long time. His jazz resume is a mile long and still growing. And those of you who have been listening for a while know that I'm kind of infatuated with Chicago and the different music scenes there. And who George is, both as a player and as a person, is a great representation of the city and the scene that shaped him and that he still calls home. So here we go. Hope you dig George Flutus. snow on the ground and it's kind of a whiteout on my calendar <laughs> as well um but actually you know up until the new year i was pretty busy like you know starting around in while well, in spring i guess when things kind of opened up once people started getting vaccinated whenever that was back in february march right about a year so ago. like all yeah yeah so um all through spring and then into summer 
you know, I was working multiple times a week. I had several recording sessions that happened, you know, throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I pretty much closed the year with a recording session was doing an album for a vocalist, a friend of mine here, Paul Marinero. And we had a few days in the studio just before Christmas. And then like two more days right after Christmas. Mm -hmm. And at that time, like, you know, there was, that's when the, the spike, the surge in, in Omicron cases, you know, came, came in. And, um, so there was, you know, there were a couple people who actually got sick during the session. Oh, wow. And so we were all getting tested, you know, throughout the session, like yeah. multiple times. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then as soon as the session was over, I got pretty sick and I was, I, I got tested like three times and they, they all came back negative, but I feel like. I had all the symptoms, hmm. you know, yeah. of, of, of the Omicron variant. Yeah. I, I feel like so, I, I, I got uh COVID about a month ago and I feel like I know just a lot more musicians and, you know, friends and acquaintances who, who got Omicron rather than Deltaed. Right. Like less severe symptoms, yeah. um, you know, not as long a haul of the, you know, illness. It was like maybe three, four days, right. Throat was sore and all of that. But, um, you know, that was kind of timely, uh, when it happened because we had just finished the recording session and then I started feeling a sore throat and I thought, Oh, here we go. <laughs> and, and sure enough for like, you know, four days, I was just kind of weak, achy, you know, just basically tired, had a sore throat, but nothing, nothing serious. Yeah. Um, it could have been, you know, some other cold virus. I don't know. Right. Um, but that that was pretty much it. I think the only gigs I had so far in January I played last weekend mm -hmm. at uh, at the Green Mill. Right, I was going to mention over a week ago. Yeah, so like the Green Mill and and the Jazz Showcase are kind of like the major jazz venues in in Chicago. Am I am I leaving out some? Are there more that? Uh... Yeah, there's a couple more. Uh, there's Winters Jazz Club, which is a newer club. They opened a few years ago. And that's a really nice room. It's a nice listening room. Um, and then there's Andy's, which is, you know, an old standby here in Chicago oh, on cool. Hubbard Street. Cool. Andy's is a really, really, you know, historic club, basically. It's been open since the 70s. And um, so those are all, you know, the, the, the main places to play, I would say. And then there's like performing arts centers like Fulton Art Collective and Constellation. Right, right. Here's here's a question that I didn't think about asking you, but it just occurred to me. Like you're you're a lifelong Chicagoan, um, yeah. and and you've you've played just like hundreds of jazz venues, you know, in Chicago and all over the world. Um, and I'm wondering, like, is there is there a commonality or like a through line uh, among the the successful jazz clubs that that you've played in or are familiar with? Is there like uh, is there something that's always the death knell for a jazz club that they're doing it wrong? Um, because this is just something I've thought about. I've been, <laughs> I've been playing jazz since I was in college and seen, you know, many jazz clubs come and go. And, you know, I, uh, I'm never going to be a venue owner. I'm never going to be a restaurateur, but I just, I look around at certain places and kind of think to myself, like, this, this is just not the way to do it, you know? And then I look at other places and I'm like this, they got it. They got it. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can speak with authority on that because I think that in my experience, you know, the clubs uh, finding commonalities is just off the top of my head is a little harder 
than um, recognizing the fact that the successful ones that I've seen have their own kind of, um, I guess, unique approach, Mm -hmm. you know, like, or maybe not unique, but you know, what works for one may not work for another, you know, like some places serve food, some places didn't have much success with that. They try. Yeah. And then they realize like, ah, this isn't working for whatever reason. Maybe the kitchen isn't big enough. They, they don't have the experience with handling that aspect of the business, you know, whereas maybe another place that is more of a restaurant themed type of club does well because of the fact that they serve food and that right. people can you no know, dine at the club. Yeah. Um, you know, and often those kind of places, um, tend to have, you know, less of a strict, no talking policy, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, where some places, if they don't serve food, it's not so much about the social thing while the band is playing. Right. You know, like some, like I've found, like, for example, at the jazz showcase in Chicago, all of the seats pretty much face the stage mm-hmm. and there are tables, you know, there's tables and there's even some couches here and there, but um, by and large, the way the seating is arranged, the audience faces the bandstand. Whereas with like another club like Andy's, um, most of the tables are, you know, four square. Some of them are a little larger or maybe arranged, you know, to accommodate eight, but generally they're four square tables. So, you know, you've got four people sitting at a table, they're all facing each other. They're not facing the band Mm -hmm. and they're there more to like, you know, have this collective experience eating out for the night, having conversation and hearing live music. Right. Um, you know, and that being said, Andy's has been very successful for a long time. Andy's also is kind of tied into the, um, you know, the tourism uh, scene in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of, I think a lot of hotels direct people, like someone's like, where, where's a good place to hear live music? You know, right. and Andy's is on that short list. I think winter's, you know, as well. And winter's is also a, a smaller club. It's more intimate. Um, it's not as large as those other clubs. And they, they also, they don't serve food. They, they arrange the seating to face the stage, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like a smalls type environment, in yeah. New York or something like that. Um, and then the green mill. So the green mill hat carries with it a long history. You know, it's just a really hip old, cool place. It's, yeah. it's iconic. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a place where Al Capone used to hang out and basically <laughs> kind of controlled it at one time. So it has this, this, you know, speakeasy kind of, you know, vibe or history, the air. And it's like art deco, you know, woodwork in there and, yeah. and decor. It's just a really cool room. So they attract a lot of people because of that historic thing. Mm-hmm. So you get different kind of crowds in different places, I think. You right. know, like there are people who come there to seriously listen, but there's a lot of people who come to the Green Mill because they heard it's a cool place. Mm-hmm. You know, and the music is almost, uh, you know, I don't want to say secondary, but um, not always the primary reason for being there. I mean, the fact that they have live music is, of course, you know, a huge draw. Right. And that it's usually it's, it's some type of jazz music. Right. Um, you, you mentioned the, you know, kind of the difference between a club that's a listening room, right? You're expected to sit down and shut up and listen and, and the type of place that's, you know, more sort of social, there's live music, but 
you know, everybody's conversing. It's it's a lively scene, whatever. Um, it reminded me of uh, a place in Kansas City called the Green Lady Lounge. Um, I spent seven years in Kansas City, and and the Green Lady Lounge kind of opened after my time, but I've been back there a lot. And among the musicians in Kansas City, I think there's kind of like mixed uh, opinions about the place because it's not a sit down and listen kind of place. It's like a big shotgun kind of speakeasy room like you were describing. And some right. some people go there to listen to the music. Some people go there because, like you said, they heard it was cool. Um, right. And, you know, I charge a cover. They do not. OK, that's I think that's a distinction. I that think so, too. Is important. I think so, too. Um, if, if, you know, if you're charging a cover, you can kind of expect people to sit down and be quiet. Um, if it's come one, come all, you, you're going to, you got to expect it to be like a livelier room. And I think musicians, right. musicians think the opposite. It's like, you're, you're paying to be here. You paid to get in. You presumably, uh, or no, like, you know, audience members think the opposite. You know, if I paid to get in, I shouldn't be expected to shut up. <laughs> right. I should be. That's interesting. That's an interesting twist because. That's right. The the musicians almost invariably and the club think if you paid to get in, then you should be mindful of all the other people who paid and right. want to hear the music. Right. And Andy's is very, they make a specific point of this. Um, and for a long time they, they didn't, um, but they, they have, you know, an announcement every before every set to please keep your talking down so that, uh, you and those around you can enjoy the music, mm -hmm. you know, same thing at the green mill, same thing at winters. So I think there's been a little more of a trend lately that I've seen where the club has uh, an awareness and a recognition, you know, it's sort of an empathetic kind of, you know, vibe that it sets with, with the audience uh, who paid, who do want to see and hear the music right. and focus on it. Right. So I appreciate that. Um, I'm of the opinion that a jazz club isn't a funeral parlor either though. Yeah. You know, so it's not like, you know, I don't think people should be expected to be dead quiet the whole set. Yeah. I think some low level, you know, talking, even like happy, enjoying the, reactions you know like yeah woo, you right, know whatever right. yeah man yeah. come on you know i love that because it's an engagement with the audience mm -hmm. you know and of course within limits you know you don't want to have like some pest in the front row who's constantly hollering and saying <laughs> what else you got right. you know and <laughs> so, you know and i've been been in those situations you know too uh -huh. um but for the most part i always enjoy a lively engaged audience you know, right. like the concert audience, it's, it's okay. But, um, when you're not feeling anything back, it could feel like Ray Brown used to say this <laughs> once in a while, like if the crowd was kind of dead and they're just, you know, sitting there watching, but not really, you're not getting anything back from them. He would say, looks like a damn painting out there. <laughs> 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 so I always pictured, you know, like the Dutch masters, you know, right. all these guys just, sort of <laughs> just complete, you know, no reaction at yeah. all. I like the, so you don't want the painting vibe, right? You know, I don't, I don't ever care for that. I like the Bill Hicks line where he said, uh, they, they stared at me like a dog that's been shown a card trick. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, 
what are your thoughts about sort of um, the, uh, the the present and the future of, of live jazz in terms of the venues? Because I think historically, um, you know, the default has been that kind of, uh, you know, dinner model um, where there's food served and, you know, e- either that or some kind of festival. And I'm I'm of the opinion that most jazz just doesn't really belong at a big ass festival on a big ass stage. Like I've been to those festivals, I've played at them and it just like, it just doesn't feel right to me somehow. But I think more and more, yeah, not unlike in the world of comedy, um, different types of venues and different types of live situations are being imagined and, um, uh, you know, executed for, for live jazz. Um, and obviously the, you know, the pandemic put a pause on most, if not all of that, but, but what are your thoughts about, um, well, how to make live jazz a little more, I don't know, accessible, egalitarian. Uh, do you think that's necessary? Um, yeah, I think it is necessary. I think it's a good thing for the music to be brought to as many people and new generation, Mm -hmm. uh, younger generations as possible. And historically, there have been many ways that that's been done through outreach programs in schools, Mm -hmm. through public performance, like in parks or open spaces, or even in like park districts or, you know, like New York used to have the Jazzmobile, which was um, basically like a pop-up, a rolling pop-up trailer that would come into the neighbor, into a neighborhood or into a location and, you know, open up the side. And it was a, it was a. It was a stage on wheels, basically, Yeah, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the idea of that. I would love to see that come back. It's kind of like a food truck for jazz yeah. <laughs> or a food, a food truck for any kind of music, right. you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that that would be great. And I hope that maybe that will catch on at some point mm-hmm. um, again. But as far as like businesses, you know, clubs that open with the specific mindset of i'm going to be a jazz club i think it's very very hard yeah. i mean i know some of the club owners here in chicago uh and elsewhere who have opened venues and it's such a struggle and now with the so when you were asking this question i was thinking are we talking pre-pandemic and then post post grand pause era yeah or, or are we talking about concurrent with what's going on and beyond and is the pandemic gonna last forever you know right. what I, mean? I mean is I this, guess is it's, this it's virus gonna be in our yeah it's it's, it's kind of hard it's it's a great question um and it's something i guess i haven't really thought about so you know it's it's i feel a little put on the spot like hmm that's a really <laughs> good question and it's and it's it's cool because it is putting me on the spot I think, um, you know, we see more and more concert programs that are devoted to black American music, mm-hmm. you know, in, on classical, uh, typically classical venues like symphony orchestra halls and, um, right. Like Disney hall academic. in LA and yeah. And yeah. Chicago, you know, most of the big symphony halls have or concert venues have some sort of jazz series san francisco jazz of course is mm-hmm. the, the jazz collective um and there's there's many organizations like that so i think as as the years go by i'm seeing more and more of a um kind of like grassroots community organizations that are coming up which 
which I I always thought existed a lot more in Europe and in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to play concerts and festivals in in Germany and in France and Switzerland, in Scandinavia, and then Japan, of course. And I was always like, man, they're like these tiny towns have these incredible jazz series, right? You know, or music festival series, and they're not they're they're not always festivals like on a big soundstage outside. It yeah. might be a festival that's sort of like a moving feast, right? You know, movable feast type thing where you have five different bars that participate, and they may not even be music venues all of the time, right? But through sponsorship and funding, often from the government, right? I was going to say the the government plays a role in that kind of stuff in in Europe and and Asia. We don't have a Ministry of Culture, right? You know, it would be nice if we did. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but like Quincy Jones had posted at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a post that I saw and it was referring to how in the German government, uh, Angela Merkel was with their minister of culture. It was a woman, I can't remember her name, but they had just given like 50 million euros. I think it was 50 million. So like well over $60 million in arts funding yeah i could have this wrong uh, you know what um if you can bear with me yeah uh i can even look this up it might have been 50 billion <laughs> man i wouldn't but, i wouldn't um, put it past germany to throw 50 billion at you know the arts or, or anywhere exactly. in europe i mean germany's got the money <laughs> unlike italy right yeah 50 billion euros in aid package for small, small venues and small businesses that boost artists and galleries puts other countries to shame. This was March 25th of 2020. Angela Merkel and culture minister Monica Gruters. So, you know, Quincy's post was related to this in saying, wouldn't it be nice if we had a minister of culture and we had funds that were directly allocated or, you know, earmarked for aiding not just music, but the arts in general, theater, you know, theaters, yeah, um, uh, you know, fine arts, you know, studios, galleries and, and so forth. So, you know, in the absence of that, you have a lot of community, like I said, grassroots or community type um, organizations like, uh, Chicago has this really, you know, the Hyde Park Jazz Society mm-hmm. does a lot for uh, promoting live music in Chicago. And um, so anyway, I'm getting getting a little off track or taking a long time to get around to the answer. <laughs> but I think I see the future um, related a lot to this type of, of work, mm-hmm. you know, like like venues that are um, not only jazz clubs but may have galleries there's a there's a there's a place here called the fulton art collective Mm. which has a series called the jazz record art collective and what they do is very regularly like you know once a week at least they have a show that usually the artists pay homage to a particular album so Mm -hmm. they perform the album and while they play, there's an there's a fine artist there, either a paint, usually a painter, sometimes a sculptor or you know sketch artist or something. But they're painting 
or or drawing the band as they play yeah. and then they sell their work after the gig right so it's a really cool you know kind of fusion of you know fine art and music um in one place so i'm seeing more of that kind of thing mm-hmm. and i think because it's so hard for businesses to afford all the licenses the liquor licenses food licensing especially in big cities like san francisco new york chicago new orleans these are expensive places to set up shop yeah so you know a, a a new jazz club is always kind of like man have you heard about this new jazz club in omaha <laughs> and i was like no they have a jazz club in omaha right. i was like i ended up playing there the it's called um uh the jewel uh-huh and the jewel is one of my favorite places to play in the country now right it's a beautiful club. It has a great stage, great acoustics. Yeah. The people come there to listen because they're hungry for live music. There isn't much there. Right. So, and, and, but again, that's like, I don't know if he's got some corporate backing, um, the owner, but it has the feel of like a communal effort, mm-hmm. you know? Right. right. And, and, um, that encourages me. Yeah. You know, like I'm encouraged by that. So definitely. And I think that's, that's, um, an example of how, you know, um, uh, the, the business community in a city and the jazz community in the city and, um, uh, just sort of like the, the city as a whole, you know, like music fans in a city all work together and kind of each hold up their end to keep stuff going and keep it vibrant and, um, you know, like there, there's a, there's a, a way that sort of, a, a jazz community kind of rallies around venues, um, especially if they're in trouble, but <laughs> just all the time, yeah. like these venues play a vital role in, um, you know, the, the, the jazz community, they're kind of the tent poles of, of all these jazz musicians holding them all up. Um, there's definitely, I think, uh, an appetite, you mm-hmm. know, throughout like throughout the communities in, in most, in most places, right. People appreciate the music and they, you know, they, they want to have more of it. It's just a matter of getting everyone kind of in line, you know, right. on, on the same, not on the same page, but in the same stream, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's like smalls smalls had a lot of outreach in New York from the community and from artists. I think Billy Joel donated, a bunch of money to help keep them afloat Wow! at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, here in Chicago, Winters had a GoFundMe page mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm sure his rent is no joke. He's in prime real estate, downtown Chicago. Yeah. And people, people rallied and it was able to kind of give him, you know, the push through the rough water. Yeah. And he came out the other end when I think it was last March when they started booking bands again in March of 2021. And all of a sudden I was playing there like multiple times a week mm-hmm. and I got, you know, a couple messages like, damn, you're like the mayor of winters, you know, <laughs> like the house, or you're like the house drummer now. Right, right. You I, gotta, like, I don't know why that is. It's just, you know, you but gotta, I was, you got a cotton was the back or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, a similar thing you know, happened with uh blue whale in Los Angeles. I don't know if you've ever played there. Um, yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. It was bef- well before the pandemic a few years ago, but they they kind of hit the skids a little bit, and and you know the L.A. jazz community just did not let it happen. You know they really they really yeah. got that club through. It's unfortunate that they couldn't survive the uh, the pandemic. I wasn't aware of that. Did did they did they not? Yeah, make I mean, it as far as I know, as far as I know, I don't think they reopened. But oh they closed. man, wow! They closed rather early too. Mm-hmm. 
it was like you know maybe spring summer of 2020 yeah and they announced that they would not be able to continue so hopefully someday they can open in another location yeah that would be great because that's i mean that's another example of a place that um is you know they they didn't um they didn't sort of go by the uh the template of the um you know restaurant vibe like it's a different right. feeling space uh the the seating is different the um the aesthetic is different um it's just a very cool like you you walk in there and you're like oh creativity happens here um <laughs> exactly know, they have yeah. a little bit of food they have some small bites uh but it's you know right. great That's listening where the room the focus is on on listening yeah. and um all the musicians love those places yep yep you know usually unequivocally and the other thing about the blue whale like i don't know if any of the clubs in chicago are like this but like the blue whale was open to damn near anything <laughs> you know yeah. like certain clubs are kind of known for certain types of jazz whether it's more old school trad jazz right or, old school bop yeah. or some you know some places are known for like fusion or more avant-garde stuff and blue whale just yeah. had it all it was like any any week in the year it was like seven different completely crazy awesome things yeah um there's a the constellation in chicago is is like that mm -hmm. i would say that's one one place where uh, there's a lot of variety, stylistic variety, yeah. a lot of variety in the size of the ensembles. Right. You know, it has more of a theater kind of vibe. There's another place in Evanston, Illinois here, which is a suburb um, that I really enjoy playing at. It's called uh, um, Studio Five, mm. and it's a dance. It's, it's a dance studio on one side, and then the other side has like dramatic performances, performance art. And, and, uh, they were doing a lot of streaming through the pandemic when everything was locked down Yeah, and real high quality video and audio feed, you know, it was just really nice. Um, but I enjoy that. So that's like a small concert venue. It's mm -hmm. not really like a concert hall with a balcony and the whole bit. Right. It's like maybe, you know, 200 seats at the most, something yeah. like that. So it's more of like a small theater venue, right. you know, and the audience is directly in front of the stage. And you feel like you're playing to an intimate, you know, theater crowd. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I'm seeing more of those kind of venues as well. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully, you know, those the, the ones that exist are, are going to make it through here and, and some more will, will pop up in their wake. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned Ray Brown. Um, and, you know, it, it, there's there really isn't much more of an iconic bassist in in jazz history than <laughs> than Ray Brown. That's right. Uh, and and you got <laughs> to play boss. you got to play trio with him. Yeah, you got to play trio with him for how many years? Uh, about a year and a half in total. Okay, yeah. cool. He, um, yeah. so, so how did that? I, I read in your bio about how that gig sort of came about. Like you were you were offered it sort of the first time, but you were about to have your first kid and just like couldn't do it, and then that offer came around a, a second time, which we've heard so many stories about, you know, drummers who, who get an opportunity, who get an offer. And for whatever reason, they just can't take it right. Story there. of my life. But, yeah. but, <laughs> but so often it comes back around, man. If people are, you know, really into you and really want to get some of what you have, you know, you will get a second offer. I really so didn't think it, I would get a happened. second offer. I was, you know, I was younger then too. Now I'm right, waiting for right. first offers, but 
Um, <laughs> aren't aren't we yeah. all? Aren't uh, we all? But yeah, that. But yeah, talk about your experience with with Ray. Well, my experience with Ray, you know, it was it was just incredibly. Um, let me find the right word because man, I was I was alternately like nervous when I first started playing with him, and and so inspired, you know, mm-hmm. and and just. It's like this mix of being on high alert, but a thrill, you know, to be playing with a bass player that had to, to be playing with a musician that had that level of depth, you know, artistic depth and swing and the feeling and the sound and every aspect of his, of his musical persona, you know, was, Mm -hmm. was just so had so much gravity you know, gra- gravitas, everything about it. Yeah. And, and I'd played with a lot of great, you know, jazz legends up to that point, but being in Ray's trio, there's a lot of responsibility for the drummer because first of all, sure. trio, you know, so, um, the fact that it's just you and Ray and a piano player, you've got a lot of responsibility in terms of shaping the music and being responsive to what's going on. And there's a, there's a light on the drums all the time with Ray Brown. Right. If you've ever listened to Ray's trios, the drums feature prominently. I was going to mention, I mean, Ray is just such a creature of the trio because he, you know, he, he became a well-known playing in the Oscar Peterson trio, which is, arguably, you know, the greatest piano trio of all time, and then went on to lead his own trios. And in uh, in the Ray Brown trio, uh, before you, there was Gregory Hutchison. Before him, there was Jeff Hamilton. Right. Um, so right. it's like, it's a hot seat. It's a hot seat, <laughs> yeah. And before, before um, Jeff, it was Mickey Roker. So, wow. you know, these are some of the most... Um, iconic you know i consider drummers in in the music you know in the, from a contemporary mm-hmm. standpoint you know hutch is is um he's he's such a well respected and incredible drummer with so much you know experience vast experience and and same with kareem riggins you know kareem riggins preceded right. me he was in the band for about mm-hmm. two years but going back to mickey mickey's one of my favorite swinging drummers yeah. You know, I always love seeing Mickey play with Ray Brown with uh, Milt Jackson. I used to go see them every oh, time wow. they come to town, and it was Man. it was usually uh, Cedar Walton, you know, and and Mickey and and uh, Ray and and Milt, and then yeah. later Mike Ladon was playing with piano with that band, and and you know Mickey's just like one of my heroes, even though I don't know if he really knew it. You know, I met him and talked to him a couple times, but. You know, mm-hmm. and Jeff was really kind and encouraging when I joined Ray's trio. And, um, you know, like playing, playing with Ray, like you said, you know, it's a hot seat because a lot of the drama is being created by the drums in that trio. Mm-hmm. And Ray would tell, told me that he said, you know, you got, you, it's on, you got to create, you know, some excitement. He says, you know what it's like to try to lead a band from behind this MF but behind the bass, you know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's a bitch, man, you know, and, and, and I thought, well, man, you know, that's Ray Brown. I mean, he's just, 
you know, he's, he's just like the, so dominating, you know, just in personality and in the way he played. And I thought it was interesting to hear that side of it. it was like, you know, I'm counting on everybody in this trio to contribute. And when it comes to the drums, he looked at it like a big band, really. You know, it's like the mm. drums set up the shouts. The drums provided that dynamic range, you know, because yeah. there's only so much dynamics a bass is capable of, you know. Right. And it's so it's so interesting that he talked about, like, how hard it is to lead a band from behind the bass, because from from your perspective, from the perspective of a drummer and just, you know, a jazz musician in general, and especially a younger jazz musician like Ray Brown just takes up all of the oxygen in the room you're you know from your perspective it's like what does he need me for he's fucking ray Brown. absolutely i used to that's such a good point i used to feel that way when i first started playing with him i was like right his beat is so strong it's like he doesn't need a drummer <laughs> but he's thinking from the audience's perspective like he knows from the audience's perspective the bass can only do so much and like that you know that fire that excitement that the audience is going to really you know be able to latch on to is going to come from you yeah and the piano, of course, you know, the pianists that he had were always pretty pyrotechnically, uh, you know, yeah. capable. Um, were you in the trio with Benny Green? Or no, much who? later. I was in the trio with Larry Fuller, who's a oh, great, great man, pianist okay. originally from Toledo, um, mm-hmm. who plays, played a lot with Jeff Hamilton's trio. Yeah. You know, Larry yeah, was yeah. living in Seattle at the time. But before Larry, so like when Hutch first asked me if I would be interested in the gig, that's when Jeff Keezer was playing piano and Jesus. you know, Jeff Keezer is just like <laughs> a monster. Benny green, the monster. Yeah. And before that, Gene Harris was the, Oh you know. man. So with Gene Oof. and Mickey and then later Gene and Jeff, I used to go see the trio with Gene and Jeff. So it was a dream come true too. I mean, I, you know, I saw them play at the jazz showcase many times. So when I got that mm-hmm. call the first time I was like, I can't believe I'm being asked to play with Ray Brown. And I've got a baby on the way. This right. is going to be a big, you know, touring commitment and the time thing. And I just, I, you know, I felt like it was, it wasn't really the right time for me that first mm-hmm. time. But the second time, a couple of years later, when Kareem was leaving the band, you know, I couldn't say no. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's so interesting because I think you know, a lot of musicians when they're offered an opportunity like that. Um, you know, for better or for worse, they drop everything, right? Like that, that takes precedence, like, uh, you know, sometimes to the detriment of some of their relationships or whatever, but, but sometimes not. Um, and I, I just, I find it, um, incredibly, uh, uh, ballsy and decent of you <laughs> to, <laughs> well, thank to you. turn that down, to turn that down the first time. Yeah. I have um, to say it wasn't that hard for me to turn down the first time because it was, it was rather sudden. It wasn't like, um, you know, it was a long time between being asked. And then when the gig would start, when Greg was, when right. Greg was leaving, it was like in the summer, it was maybe June. It was pretty short notice. He was like, I'm going to be in Chicago next month. I think it was. And, you know, I'm leaving the trio and I told Ray about you and, you know, man, I think, you know, the gig is, is, is yours. If you want it, you just got to come down and play a little bit, you know, to the club, to the Mm -hmm. showcase. And I said, man, can I, you know, let me just think about this for a minute because my wife is due like that very same time that man it was it was like the same week that they were going to be in chicago 
And and I knew like if I took the gig, I might end up missing the birth of my son, you know. And I really didn't want to do that because you know, it's just how it is. So right. So I declined because it was it was a it was a quick decision. It wasn't like I'm leaving in October or something and it's like a ways off and well, there's all these yeah. variables. It was like I just knew, you know, and it was it was similar situation when when I actually ended up accepting the gig. It was like short notice. Hmm. Kareem was leaving the band and he was like, you know, yo, I'm in town with Ray Brown coming up soon. You know, he'd like to hear you play if you're interested. And I was like, I can't, you know, I'm not going to turn this gig down a second time. That would be fool. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you mentioned like when you, when you started playing in that trio, it was, it was kind of this mix of, um, you know, uh, inspiration and, uh, I don't know if fear is the right word, heightened, but just sort of heightened awareness <laughs> right? Yeah. on alert. Yeah. Like during your time in that trio, um, did, did you ever get to a point where, um, you felt just sort of like more secure and confident in it or, or was it a year and a half of like, holy shit, this is Ray Brown. I better. Yeah, no, myself. I mean, definitely like very soon I, I would say like, you know, we had some rehearsals for about a week and, and yeah, you know, I went into the rehearsals. The The reason for the heightened awareness slash fear thing is, I don't know if you know, but Ray Brown had a lot of arrangements and they were, yeah. none of them really were written out. He had some parts written out for piano. Um, it was actually some newer material that we rarely played. Um, but for the most part, the entire book, which was at least 60, 70, 80 songs, something like that. It was all by memory and there was a lot of arrangements. So the way I learned the gig was there were tapes of that Kareem gave me that were given to him. They were like dat tapes and, you know, Ray had recorded gigs just to have a a chronicle of all of his um, arrangements. So, I mean, that's how I had to learn, learn the book was just listening to these recordings of the band playing at a club for like two weeks straight. And they played a lot of the material. But there was, right. there was a lot, and for there was a lot of songs, you know. So when I went in and we started rehearsing, of course I'm like, "Am I? Is this shout chorus on this one? Is that the one that goes, you know, but or is it the one that goes, but you know? <laughs> there's a lot of like similarities, you know, and it's just yeah, like keeping yeah. all of this shit straight was just yeah. Which which medium up tempo shout chorus is this one? Right, right. <laughs> so and and you know Ray Ray was quick to react and respond if something was wrong, you know. So if mm, something was yeah. off, and and rehearsing is one thing, but on the gig, it's like if you're if you're misstepping on the gig. You, he would let you know it like right away. Right. The other thing is right. the Ray, the way Ray set up is just like the way Oscar set up. It's just like pretty much the way Ahmad Jamal set up, which um, if you're familiar, it's the bass is in the center, but the drums are off to his right and the piano mm-hmm. is to his left and, and in front. So that way right. as, as captain of the ship, he can see the left hand or the hands on the piano and he can also yep. be right next to my hi-hat, which is what he liked. And he said, you know, I like that right. hi-hat to be right there. And what I liked, mm-hmm. uh, what I loved about it was I could also see the piano clearly. I could see the left hand movement. And I could hear Ray's bass acoustically because it's facing me. 
You know how typically when yeah. you set up, the bass is kind of angled away from you. The back of the bass is facing the ride cymbal. Yeah. But in this yeah. in this situation, it's the perfect way to set up a trio, in my opinion, because the drummer's right. hi hat and the bass player's right hand, his fingers, assuming he's right handed. Um, yeah. you can feel that pulse on the tips of the fingers in the instrument. Totally. I, it, and it bugs me when I can't see a bassist's fingers, especially when they're playing upright, because you can, you, you get so much info about how they sound and how can, how you can sound good with them from just the, the look of how their fingers like pull on those strings. Like some, some bassists have a lighter touch a lighter pluck some are just like super digging in some are using their whole arm yeah um and if i can't see what's going on there it's a form can, of communication it. it's a visual sure. the visual communication and it's a feeling too it's a feeling communication yeah. like I, I don't even have to really be looking at him but i can you know there's like the peripheral sight and feeling and then right. the other thing is as far as you know the difficulty of being a bass player leading a, a a band that's the that's the optimal way for a bass player to communicate because the pianist's head is two feet away you know, mm -hmm. my head is a couple feet away it's real easy to give cues or signals or you know and often ray would do that you know like if he dug it he'd say all right yeah let's get hot you know mm -hmm. and you'd hear all of that and it, <laughs> and it and so they're you know just playing with him is inspiring but then also having that close contact is also, you know, inspirational too. Right. But the main thing, um, you know, the main thing that's inspirational was his beat. I mean, no, I've never, I've yeah. never played with a bass player who had a beat like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think there, there was one, you know, um, I, uh, among bass players, um, Ray Brown just, just holds, uh, such a, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's just on the Mount Rushmore. Absolutely. Um, for that, you know, there, there are other bassists and other jazz musicians who are on Mount Rushmore for different reasons for their, um, you know, for maybe their compositions or for, um, their soloing ability or all that. But like what you always hear bassists talk about with Ray is just like the pulse, the sound, the time the command like just the absolute um uh, mastery of the bass's role absolutely yeah and the note and the note choices too yeah you know in yeah, addition yeah. to all of that that was always so great for me to like be privy to all those great walking lines you know right. like a lot of times i was just kind of keyed into what the way he would shape a walking line you know mm -hmm. it's just that was a, that was a special special time to be in that trio and you know that had that kind of close close uh working relationship drum history podcast with uh bart vanderzee um and that episode wasn't about you so much that was all about john bonham and 
imagine you know, that. Despite, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like right. despite despite the fact that you are a lot a, of people are jazz, like what what? Yeah, you, <laughs> you're know. a jazz drummer by trade, and and that's your that's your blood type. But you're a full on bonzo head, and I'll I'll let people listen to that uh, episode. We won't go on and on about Bonham here. Yeah, um, I highly recommend everybody check out that episode. Um, but there's something I wanted to ask you in in relation to Bonham was. Um, you know, in that episode, you talked about all of the jazz drummers that were an influence on Bonham. And I'm wondering uh, if that sort of turned around and, and how you being such a fan of Bonham, especially as you were coming up, shaped your jazz drumming. There are ways that certain jazz drummers shaped his drumming. Um, but I'm wondering how his drumming shaped you as a jazz drummer. Um, you know, so my favorite drummers are all guys who have a great sound and a great feel. Those to mm-hmm. me those are the those are the primary or defining characteristics. So no matter what the genre um you know that's those are the two things that that hit me you know first and 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 stay with me the most about their playing. So when I was very young before I knew who John Bonham was, uh, my dad, who was a kind of a hobbyist drummer, you know, was playing great jazz records from, you know, the time I was born. So I grew up hearing Max Roach, Art Blakey, Philly Joe Jones regularly, like every day. So by the time I was like four or five years old, he didn't have drums at that time. He decided to get a drum set again. He had sold his drums and got married and that whole kind of routine, you know, became uh, more of a family man and gave, right. gave up his musician aspirations. Dadding so hard. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Um, but part of that was he, he saw that I took an affinity to the music. You know, I used to like to sit down and listen to it. And, and, uh, you know, I remember him talking about what a drummer was doing, you know, listen to the sound of that. And the, the, the press roll is like a lion's roar. I remember he used to like <laughs> Art Blakey. So, you know, the, I, I just got bit by the bug real early. And he, mm-hmm. then he took me to see people when I was very young. He got some drums, you know, I was like five years old. I used to bash on them and try to, you know, emulate what I heard on a record. Yeah. Um, so my playing was really shaped by those people first, you know, people like Art Blakey, Max Roach, um, Kenny Clark, all of his favorites, right? Jimmy Cobb. So when I, when I started hearing John Bonham, it was because of him because he bought the right. I think it was a similar thing. Like he thought, wow, you know, he wasn't like a huge rock head or anything, right? But he heard, he heard the album, the albums, and he heard Bonham's drumming and he liked it. And so he bought those albums and, uh, I would, I guess, you know, as far as your question goes, I think that just Bonham's sense of timing and his sense of sound, mm-hmm. um, definitely left a huge mark on my style or way of playing. And that is, was put into the funnel you know, of all right. the different, different influences. So I've, I've played with people and they, you know, sometimes I'll hear someone say, man, you know, I can really hear the Bonham influence. And I think, <laughs> Oh, that's funny because I'm not like, you know, I don't think I'm trying to 
you know, do anything that specifically references bottom. Now I know that a lot of my playing, you can clearly hear who my influences are. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, I'm not the kind of drummer who sounds like nobody. Like, I think I sound a lot and humbly, I'm saying this humbly, but I think I sound a lot, you know, there's a lot of Philly Joe in my playing. There's a lot of Max. There's a lot of Blakey. There's a lot of Elvin. There's a lot of Billy Higgins, you know, the, yeah. and then, and then, and everybody, you know, at, at some time, and it depends on what the music calls for, but those are the, those are the artists, you know, who kind of shaped my personality mm -hmm. and Bonham's definitely one of them. But as far as like literal, you know, application of things he did, it's not often that, that I think that that happens. Um, I don't know for sure if Bonham was influenced by any of those people, at least to a, to a high degree. I mean, I don't know how much he was listening to Max Roach. He obviously did because he was quoting the drum also waltzes oh right yeah you mentioned that yeah so i mean that that's that's a big clue but just because of that that doesn't m mean max roach was a big influence that means he mm -hmm. heard something max did and applied it you know used right. it um same with elvin you know i don't know if he was a big fan of elvin if he put on you know coltrane's albums live at birdland and grooved to it and learned bits of it in 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 some ways i i highly doubt that but when i say that you know i think that elvin jones influenced john bonham it's because elvin jones he he influenced almost everybody who plays drums if you're open to right. drumming you right. know just and 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 even if you just play triplets on the tom floor tom bass drum and you do it over and over you know can one say that's clearly elvin jones or taken from elvin jones i don't know if, if every drummer listened to elvin jones and adapted it but mm -hmm. it becomes part of the vocabulary of of the language right it's just it's floating around in the ether and it kind of lands on everybody yeah um and i think that that's definitely true about bonham um, and as far as you're playing, like, I think, you know, the, the drummers you mentioned, especially Elvin, um, you know, and, and Bonham, like they all, they, you know, they had a big sound, like you mentioned a drummer's sound. It's, it's all a big sound. It's, it's not open. to say it's, it's yeah, open, it's, it's tonal, you know, and the way they right. play, they, they play in a way that, um, it really utilizes the tonality of the instrument. Yeah. Not like it's, you know, I mean, no one had a stronger groove than Bonham. I mean, Bonham's up there with the best, in my opinion, as far as a yeah. feel and a groove. Right. But he also has a very tonal or melodic way of playing fills, which mm -hmm. not a lot of, which not a lot of groove drummers have, you know, and conversely, not a lot of drummers who play with a real sense of tonal or melodic you know, kind of, uh, awareness don't always have like the, you know, the strongest groove, but they have like yeah. a nice sound and know how to get a nice sound out of the instrument. The greatest guys have it all like Blakey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Philly talk Joe. about a big sound. Yeah. Jesus, Tony, Blakey. I mean, Tony, Jack DeJanet, you know, yeah. and then getting even more contemporary guys like Greg Hutchinson, Brian blade, Bill Stewart, yeah. you know, these guys have, and, and so to me, it's all part of one like big meta, you know, aesthetic, it's right? Like the good sound, a good feel, 
counts for way more to me than, than the technical or rudimental or cerebral kind of, you know, subdivisional aspects of drumming. I mean, I love right. all that stuff too. Not saying I can play it, you know, very, very well, but <laughs> I, I love it. I, I, res- I respect it. But what really, you know, the comfort food of, of drumming to me is that kind of drumming. Yeah. And all the drummers you mentioned, something else that I think they all have in common, including Bonham, um, is their ability to just make the drum set sound and feel like one instrument. Correct. And we talk very about good. that all the That's time. That's a very good point. Yeah. We talk about it all the time, and it's kind of an esoteric, uh, um, ambiguous idea. Um, but you know it when you hear it, right? And right. There, there, are, there are some drummers that sort of compartmentalize uh, the drum set for better or for worse. Um, but those, those drummers all just, uh, had an ability to, uh, make it so cohesive and make it all <coughs> part of the same sound. That's right. Even Charlie Watts, you know, like, and I don't say even like, because like, I mean, Charlie Ringo, these are guys that have, they're, they're somewhat simple drummers in terms of technique, mm-hmm. but what is technique? You know, like technique can be right. interpreted to mean some different things, not just speed and and uh, dynamic control, but it can also mean like how you can produce a sound and synthesis and 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 synthesize the sound, the, the multiple sounds of the instrument. Internal balance, having a concept yeah. of how to balance the ride cymbal with the hi hat, with the snare, with you know, um that's a technique that is often lost on drummers who have a lot of fast hand chops, mm-hmm. you know, but they have no clue of how to make a cohesive sound on the instrument that blends well with the band. Right. You know? And so again, to me, that's, that's the, that's, that's what I, that's what I really, you know, relate to when I'm here, yeah. when I'm hearing music. So, Tell me a little bit about Chicago. I'm I'm curious about like as as you know a born and bred Chicagoan. Um, how do you hot feel? dogs, pizza, <laughs> Italian beef, gyros? That's, that's, that's the a, long and the short of it. Yeah, that's, that's all the, you got to know about that's Chicago. The, that's the food part. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, how do you how do you feel Chicago shaped you as a drummer? How do you feel you've come out? Um, that's, that's different than if you had been a product of New York or California or somewhere else. Hmm. I think off the top of my head, being around musicians who had a real, real time, real life connection to playing the blues, Hmm. you know, like a lot of the musicians that I, uh, thankfully were able, I, I was able to apprentice with, um, had that feeling in their playing. You know, Von, yeah. Fre- Von Freeman, Lynn Halliday, Jody Christian, John Young, Eddie Johnson. Like, these are all well-known Chicago musicians. And I played with them often and learned, you know, in real time playing with them. And it's a certain sensibility and feeling for playing a groove or playing the blues right. that, that Chicago has. You know, Chicago's legendary, of course, for being a place where the the great blues artists from the South migrated up and plugged in and kind of pioneered Well, they definitely pioneered this electric blues sound, you know, right. But, con- right. but concurrent with that, you know, you had the great black artists of, uh, 
you know, black, black music in, in, uh, Chicago South side, people like Johnny Griffin and, um, Nat King Cole, Dinah Washington, who went to high schools in Chicago. And many of the musicians that I worked with went to those same schools. So they were part of the same life community, Mm -hmm. you know, not just, not just education, not just musically, but you know, in terms of early education, you know, like a lot of your personality gets formed when you're in high school, your tastes, you know, people you hang out with, you know, shared cultural experiences, music, food, you know, arts. And, and I think that that collective consciousness that came out of Chicago's South side community, you know, to this day, it has an influence and I'm proud, I'm proud of that. And I, I really treasure that and respect it. And, um, I think that Detroit, you know, has its, its style and stamp and sound, all those great piano players from Detroit. Right. Think about like Hank Jones and Tommy Flanagan, Barry Harris and, and Elvin and Elvin, you know, the Jones brothers. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the drum, the drum situation too, but, um, you know, DC has its sound and Philly had so much of a distinctive sound and feeling in, in the saxophone playing and the drumming. Right. Really. Um, but you know, Chicago always has that down home soul feeling mm. to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from the blues. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know to say much more about it other than, other than that, really. Well, I think it speaks to sort of Chicago's um, kind of uh, uh, blue-collar workman-like persona, Um, and that's, you know, maybe kind of a cliche by now. Um, Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I would say that that factors into it. And and a lot of these big-shoulder cities, like Chicago's called the city of big shoulders, but, you know, I think of Cleveland that way. I think of St. Louis that way. I think of um, Detroit, you know, that Mm -hmm. way. Like, just working class, you know, work, workmanlike, you get, get the job done and you're, you know, it's, it's not about like, I mean, I, of course I love New York and New York is one of the most inspiring places on earth, but New York has that glitz too, you know, right. you could never really call Chicago glitzy, even though there's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, LA is glitzy, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. San Francisco, I guess, has its type of glitz, but uh, um, you know that's that's a whole other thing there. Yeah, um, but it's 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 one of the reasons I'm fascinated with Chicago is because it doesn't like Chicago doesn't care about being fancy or shiny. It just cares about being good. It didn't and... used to. Yeah, it didn't used to. <laughs> I don't know what the hell's going on with Chicago now. The pandemic has like thrown such a wrench i think in yeah in the evolution of a lot of things and maybe you know as as things evolve that it'll be for the better i hope right um but right now i'm just feeling like you know the loss of a lot of people have moved out of illinois a lot of people have moved out of chicago um mm. you know businesses in chicago a lot of them are suffering you know they're doing what they can and this is true of course all over the country but i don't know how this is going to change chicago because chicago became a little bit more techie too you know mm-hmm. in recent years yeah. as industry is kind of you know it's just that's 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 the way of the the world it's just going that yeah. way so um i hope chicago can retain you know some of that down to earth flavor 
Yeah, I, I, I and the neighborhoods. Like it, it, Chicago's a city of neighborhoods too, which always meant definitely, a lot. definitely. I, I feel like it couldn't, you know, there, to an extent, uh, Chicago couldn't lose that if it tried. Um, I hope not. You know, yeah, short of short of just a complete uh, Seattle style takeover by <laughs> by tech. <I laughs> yeah. <don't know>. yeah, <laughs> right. I think I think the 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 metamorphosis of Seattle is complete at this point. Um, but you know, talking about, uh, sort of the way Chicago is changing or coming out of the pandemic, um, what, what are your sort of, um, thoughts and feelings about the next phase of, of your career? And, and, you know, who knows if, um, we're going to be free of this pandemic in a couple months, or if we're just going to kind of live with it for the rest of our lives. But like, how have the last couple of years made you think about, um, what you're going to prioritize uh, in in this next chapter of of what you do? <laughs> Finding gigs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean you know that's uh, it. Always, it's like as a freelance drummer, let's say, because that's really what I kind of how I characterize myself. Um, I th- I really enjoy the variety of playing with different artists, different bands, mm-hmm. different individuals, you know, people I've never played with before. You know, I, I love that. Um, yeah. I've, and I I've think that's a- more, that's easier and more common in jazz than I think most genres. Like that's commonplace in, in jazz. Definitely. Yeah. So I feel fortunate, you know, to have had the experience of experiences that I've had um, <clears throat> right up to now. And I'm meeting new young you know meeting new faces young musicians older musicians that i've never worked with before and that's what i really look forward to and i hope that that continues but with you mm-hmm. know the current situation and lockdowns and limitations on live performance um i've been thinking more about like what i can do as an outlet you know i guess um creatively because i don't write i don't have my own band i mean i've i've led my own gigs and i've i've had a couple bands that um you know i was booking around town basically but nothing that i was taking on the road right um i i haven't made any recordings under my own name and you know i guess i've kind of got i've got to a point now in my life where like i'm okay with that like you know the era of making a cd and then putting it out and you know, selling it on the gig and all of that. That's it's it's, over. It's almost over. Yeah. I mean, almost, <laughs> I, I know musicians are, are, you know, getting CDs pressed and putting them out, but you know, putting stuff on Bandcamp, putting it, getting it out online or on your website, or even if it's not, you know, like even websites are kind of over, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I'm kind of okay with it. I feel like I just kind of like went through this, this era and here I am, and it's like, you know, what can I do? So recently I've been thinking about the whole sample pack, you know, phenomenon. Like a lot of, I'm seeing more uh, advertising for drummers who, musicians in general, but drummers especially. Right. And, and being on social media and following a lot of drummers, that's what, you know, you end up seeing more in your feed on Instagram, right. for example. So I got curious about it. I'm looking, I'm looking into doing some sample packs. First of all, I I'm, I'm probably going to do like a Bonham style, uh, oh, cool. you know, sample pack. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not really quite sure yet how I want to do that because I don't want to just like literally play 
John Bonham's drum beats, even though I don't know if there's even that much of that that exists out there. But um, yeah. but with the, with I mean, if someone if someone wants to sample when the levee breaks, they can just sample when the levee breaks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but getting like you know like a multi-track individual stems with a good sound, you know, with a, yeah. with that kind of sound, I feel pretty confidently about you know achieving some good results with that. Right. So, so I may, you know, do something like that. That's sort of like Bonham esque sound and uh -huh. grooves, you know, but I also want to do some straight ahead stuff, you know, just swing in time, different grooves, different, different types of groove, different tempos. And, 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 you know, I hope that that's something that, that I don't think is going to be, you know, all that time consuming either. You know, so right, right. Uh, in the near future, I'm just hoping that gigs start to pick up again and that I can start traveling. I mean, that's the main right. thing. Like what I really want to do is get back to playing for foreign audiences. Mm, I yeah. was, I was just in Portugal in November. We did a, with a band from Chicago, we did a residency at, at, at a jazz festival there and we were doing some coaching uh, with, with, uh, with ensembles. And then we also performed and it just felt so good to be in a different place playing music for people who are appreciative. Yeah. You know, and that's the, that's the thing that I really miss the most. So, you know, that's what I'm really looking forward to getting back to. Yeah. I, I share that. I think, you know, um, the pandemic for all of us, uh, kind of crystallized what's important to us. Like you said, with, you know, this whole sample pack thing and whatever else, uh, you know, the rest of us are, are thinking about doing, um, it sort of inspired us to look at something new to say, like, what else can we do? What's so for me, you know, getting this studio together over the last two years and learning how to track drums finally and, um, doing that whole thing has been the project and it's been super rewarding and fulfilling and challenging. And like, you know, this is a lane that I'm going to have for, for the rest of my life. Right. Same, but same at, here. Yeah. At the same time the pandemic made me realize that for me, and it sounds like for you playing music with people in front of people is still plan a. Absolutely. And, and if I had the choice, it. like if somebody said, Hey, can you lay down some tracks for me in your basement studio, which I have, you know, my stuff all set up now and right. got a, got, got a brand new interface that I'm all excited about. Cause I'm really a neophyte with this stuff too. Like I'm, I'm yeah. not very technologically savvy. Me neither. <laughs> I was just I was just talking to a great drummer, you you know George Sluppick. Oh yeah, I interviewed him a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, and George and I were just talking, and we were kind of comparing notes on home recording, and I'm and I'm thinking of him as like, you know, this is a guy who does all kinds of studio work, session work. He's really got it down. And but when he was telling me about recording himself, he was like, man, you know, I was just like, I don't, it, you know, it's it's hard, you know, getting started. It's just process of trial and error. And I was like. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know like, it took yeah. me a little while to get used to doing what I've been on the other end of in studios for most of my life. You know, seeing right. mics set up and distancing and, you know, all that, all that business. And I never really paid that close attention until I started doing it myself. Then I started asking engineers like, Hey, you know, as far as like the spacing, or do you prefer ORTF to like XY overhead, yeah. you know, patterns and, <laughs> you know, and so 
Probably, and you li- never get a straight answer. It's like gardening. It's there's just you 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 know you go online and everybody's doing all kinds of shit yeah. all different ways. Pinch of salt. <laughs> it's like pinch of salt. What's a pinch? You know. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but well, I, it's interesting you mentioned the the sample thing and the remote recording because you know th- those things have become you know commonplace in most other genres. Um, yeah. But like, what is what kind of a role are those things going to play in in jazz? Do you think? Well, for example, like I've done a bunch of, because of the Zeppelin thing that I do, this it's called People's Front of Zeppelin. It's a YouTube, it's like a, do you know about this? Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) I got into this before the pandemic, like well before I started doing Mm -hmm. this like virtual collaboration with these guys just for fun. They're great musicians, but they all, you know, have their own respective musical careers and uh, the guitar players in Dubrovnik, you know, he's kind of a busy working freelance wow. guitarist on the scene there, plays like a lot of, you know, plays for a lot of like tourism, basically in Dubrovnik, a lot of hotel Is that in gigs. Croatia? Yeah. Yeah. Croatia. Okay. Yeah. So he, he saw my YouTube channel, the one related to Bonham, and he was like, you know, man, this is really great. I love your drum tracks. Would you mind if I threw down some guitar parts on your you know, using your, your, your drums as backing tracks. I said, by all means, you know, and then he sent me what he did. And I thought it was just going to be like, Oh, it'll be okay. You know, (laughs) like, wow, this guy can really play. I mean, he plays his ass off, you know, he's soulful. And, and then I met the bass player in New York, great bass player, Pete. Um, And so we decided to give this, you know, this thing a go. And we've been doing this now for a few years and, you know, building up a little bit of a following so much so that we, we may, I don't want to let a cat out of the bag too prematurely, but we may have a gig in Dubrov in Dubrovnik this year. Oh, how cool. At the uh, hard rock. There's, they're opening a hard rock there. So this would be a complete <laughs> departure are. from, you know, for me in terms right. of like, you know, going to Europe to play, you know, to play Zeppelin shows instead of, uh, or with a cover band. Um, but yeah, so you know, I have some enthusiasm. I'm excited about the prospect of that. Um, during the course of the pandemic, I was able to sort of up my game a little bit in terms of recording, yeah. you know, at home, learning a little bit more about that process, and and consequently being on Instagram and on social media, and even locally, like you know, a lot of people were doing virtual projects throughout mm-hmm. the course of this past two years. You know, so I started to gradually get into that and then it was like you know every couple weeks somebody was like hey man can you just throw down you know some tracks on this tune and so you know some of it paid some of it didn't some of it was like just you know for friends for fun and and some of it's you know professional in nature and some of it paid actually pretty damn good you know so Mm -hmm. so it's like you said it's just another aspect now that i'll have with me in the skill set going forward and it sounds like you're you're reasonably confident that um you know the the idea of remote recording or the idea of a drum sample pack um is uh going to make its way into jazz the way it's made its way I think it has value I think it definitely has value for example like yeah. a lot of times I hear bass players say man you know like with this advent of you know sample packs and um and also apps, you know, like play along apps and stuff like that. It's mm-hmm. like these players love to play with a, a ride symbol. They don't want to have to play with a click, you yeah. know. And if they had the choice, they'd love to play with a drummer. So, right. you know, my idea, which isn't novel, I think 
it's, this has been happening now for a little while at least, is record a bunch of gr- really nice sounding cymbal beats and grooves and bass players will love to play along with this, you know, pianists, you know, a whole rhythm, entire rhythm sections or, you know, whomever. And if right. people can use it as a backing track, that's great. But the, the end goal is to play the music for people live and communicate and exchange energy, you know, like that's, that yeah. still is like, that should be the, the, the chief priority as a, as a music musician. And, and I, I just, I think that, you know, like some of the stuff I've done recently, it ended up on Bandcamp or SoundCloud. It's like no big deal, but but it's good music. You know, it's really good mm-hmm. music. And in whatever limited way, if you're bringing enjoyment to people, whether it's in a club and they're sitting at the club for 90 minutes, or they go to you go to a Bandcamp page and download a song, and then they're playing it at home and they enjoy it. It's the same. It's really it's kind of the, you know, it's, it's fulfilling the same role as far as like, um, bringing enjoyment to people through music. Right. So there, I, I definitely see there being a value in, in doing this. That's encouraging. Um, I've, I've, you know, over the last few years, I've thought, uh, that, uh, the the jazz world was going to sort of uh shun <laughs> the uh the idea of remote recording or a sample you mean because of and that because of the kind of traditionalism in the in the yeah and some some partly because of the traditionalism but partly because of just like you said there's there's nothing that can replace a live experience especially when it comes to jazz yeah right um but like you said, I think, you know, these things can be used as uh, tools for jazz musicians to learn along the way. It might not be part of the final product the way it is in some other genres, um, but there's definitely a role for it to play. Yeah. For example, like I did a couple sessions where I laid down. I didn't think I was laying down a scratch track at the time. I thought I'm, I'm laying down the track. What do you mean? You know, no, I, you know, it was, de- it was good. But like, so let's say there's two soloists there's a saxophone solo and a piano solo so i just you know i'm playing through these choruses three choruses of sax three choruses of piano then the outhead so as i'm playing through i'm trying to visualize a solo in my head because all i'm hearing is ding 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 you know comping and baseline right so right. we've done this. We've even done it, you know, in real time in studios where you lay down a track because the soloist couldn't make the gig or whatever. Right. But the the funny thing about this was then the saxophone player added his solo. And after I heard it, I was like, I, now I want to play with the sax solo because right. even, even though in a way it's not cheating, but it's kind of like, you know, I, not like I'm rehearsing what I'm going to play with the soloist but I can react and respond to the soloist. And I think it'll sound better if I do that now. Yeah. And the soloist laying his track down over me, just sort of blind flailing without any <laughs> reference, you know? And that's just, that's just how, you know, I, I mean, it was good. It was fine. It was good enough, but I was like, I can play this better now that I hear the soloist. I could play with his energy. I can play yeah. off of some ideas, but there's a, but there's a bit of a caveat to this because if, and and I and I discovered it when I was recording. So I started playing along to this sax solo, and then I played something I didn't like, and I stopped and I went back. Okay, start again. And I'm playing, 
And then I played something else I didn't like. And I said, oh, no, I didn't like that. So then, like, the third time, the sax played something, a rhythmic figure. That was like, boo boo be up boo boo up You know, let's say that's what it was. And I found yeah. myself going, bat to bat to bat with him. Uh-huh. You know, because now I'm memorizing his solo. Right. And then I was like, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> this shit's going to be right. corny. Yeah. You know, it's going to sound corny if I'm catching things too much you know right so i had so then you have to like be careful to not play uh, you know like like you memorize the solo and now you're playing along with it because then it sounds contrived and right because that's not uh, what happens on on the bandstand or historically in in jazz recording unless unless you're lucky and you have that moment where you feel like yeah man i caught exactly what you played whoa (laughs) yeah there are those there are those little (laughs) confluences of like you know those great minds those great minds moments yeah but those are the things that are missing from virtual performance is humor it's the extemporaneous uh is that the right word? Extemporaneous, yeah. you know, kind of vibes that you can only get from being on stage in the moment and who knows what's going to happen. Right, right. Well, hopefully we'll get back to, to more of that before too long here. Um, George, it was it was great talking to you, man. Thanks for, thanks for doing it. Great to finally meet you. Thank you, Zach. It's my pleasure, man. Great talking to you. There you go, a jazz drummer's jazz drummer, Chicago cat through and through, George Flutus. Thanks to him for that talk. If you want to dig into his drum history episode talking about John Bonham, that's from a few weeks back on January 11th. I recommend it highly. Next week, Matthew Krauss will be talking with drummer, author, and cancer survivor Rob Rufus. They'll be talking about Rob's book, Die Young With Me, and much more. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.